Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin getting into the heart of our study of this gospel this morning. I trust that you have been directing your attention to it. I've already gotten reports back from people who have been reading Mark, some who read the gospel of Mark in one sitting, as I tried to encourage you to do. And I hope that was encouraging to you. And you can do it again if you want to. But I hope that this is feeding your soul beyond just Sunday mornings. I have the privilege of living with these texts all week. And so really, by the time I preach it, I'm already excited to get on to the next passage. But we're going to park this morning in, Lord willing, the first 13 verses, which might seem like a lot and might seem like three different parts, but they actually are are three sections of the same point that Mark is making. Let me read that for us. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make its paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased." Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. I read a very interesting article this week doing some research about how involved the secret service are when the president is heading to a town or a foreign country. All the preparations that go behind the scenes and sometimes in open sight for a presidential visit. It's intricately involved and we don't even know everything they do. But this article highlights 13 ways the president has, and this was their word, forerunners. Let me just list those real quickly. First of all, many agents come early. Second, they warn the problem folks that they'll be watched. How would you like to have the president come to Kansas City and someone call you and say, we've got our eye on you? They bring dogs, bomb-sniffing dogs, drug-sniffing dogs, they notify hospitals and have emergency and contingency plans. They, they keep an extra plane ready nearby to evacuate the president. Thousands and thousands of people are involved, some of which you see and most of which you don't. They shut down highways and roads and schools. They sneak the president through back alleyways and entrances. Agents do background checks on everyone who works in the hotel where the president will be staying. 
They clear out three floors above and below where the president will be staying. They throw out all the electronics that will be close by there. They do extensive electronic searches in the room where he'll be staying and see if their room has been bugged. They set up three different concentric perimeters in case something were to happen. And this last one, I said, it was funny, it says they watch the pot, which means they watch what the president eats and make sure no one's sneaking anything nefarious into his meals. And that's just 13 things we know about. There are countless ways that they prepare for the president's visit that they don't want us to know about. The point is simple. The arrival of a president involves preparing the people and the place for his coming and for his safety. Up the ante to the visit of the creator king of the universe who is going to come to the planet earth that he created and visit with the people in whose image his mirror reflected. What would that like be like? Well, in the passage before us, we find out that God sent a forerunner. But it wasn't a team of thousands. It was a man who dressed funny and had a strange diet. Mark opens up his gospel in these first 13 verses and talks about preparation. And in his preparation, he, he, he lists the way that we're supposed to understand the context for believing that the Son of God is the Son of God. These 13 verses, in fact, work together as a unit before Jesus begins his official ministry that starts actually in verse 14 in Galilee. Now, I want to confess something to you, and I hope we can get finished this morning. I have confidence that we can. But looking at these first 13 verses might seem a little disjointed. I mean, we're going to look at three different events. John the Baptist, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. And you would be tempted, as I was, to look at these three events as individual, standalone parts of Mark's narrative. But you would be wrong. They work together. They work in tandem. They work as a unit to make a point. My temptation is to take a deep dive and to do a three-week study of John the Baptist or a four-week study of Jesus' obedience and baptism or a look for multiple weeks at Jesus' temptation and how he conquers sin and offers you and me hope to do the same. But Mark's speed and brevity don't allow us or encourage us to do that. I think you'll see that these three parts of his opening 13 verses actually work together as one message. Now, before we get there, I just want to look again, reviewing at the beginning verse, the title really, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When Mark uses the term gospel, by the way, he's not talking about his book. The term gospel has a couple of associations, right? The four gospels, that means the four narratives about Jesus. We also talk about the gospel as the plan of salvation, the person of Christ, the good news that is sinners can be saved by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. When Mark uses the term gospel, he's not talking about his book. He's using that term as the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. And if we believe that Mark was the first to write one of these gospels, which is likely, he was the very first human, the very first person to describe the plan of salvation as the gospel. He uses the term seven times in, uh, as the first of the gospel writers to employ the term. So as Mark begins this story of Jesus, his perspective, which is the facts of Peter put through the personality of Mark, he points to something that's important as he begins. The Savior and his credentials. He's announcing this likely to a group of people, Gentiles in Rome. And he wants people to know this king of kings, this prelude to the king of the universe, the creator of the world, 
Why should we believe that Jesus from Nazareth is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Why should we believe you, Mark? And he starts by giving us that reveal. You could say it this way. Mark starts with the conclusion. This is who Jesus is, and this is why we should believe him. And this will be the foundation on which the following Galilean ministry will be built, where he's going to offer sinners the opportunity to follow him. How can we be confident that this Jesus who was raised in Nazareth is indeed who Mark announces him to be in verse 1, the Son of God? How can we be sure? Well, I'm glad you asked because he's going to provide us three sources of credibility for the Son of God. Three sources of credibility for the Son of God. How do we know he is the Son of God? How do we know he's followable? How do we know we should give our lives to him? What is the basis on which we should believe he is who Mark says he is? He's going to give us three sources. The first is in verses two to eight, his forerunner, his forerunner. That's the witness of the last Old Testament prophet, namely John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus himself. His forerunner, the witness of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Now, we're gonna break this first source of credibility even down further into three ways to understand that. First, let's look at the fact that he prepared, John prepared the way. Verse two, Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of Yahweh or the Lord, the Old Testament God. Make his paths straight. Now, we noted last week that Mark is most likely, as I said, writing to Gentiles who are in Rome, some of whom were, were believers in the gospel. They had been shared the gospel by, by uh, Paul's missionary visits, but they wanted to know, needed to know more data about the Savior himself. This is also an evangelistic tool. This was a tract that Mark would hand. Imagine a tract, 16 chapters. This is who Jesus is and why he's worthy to be followed and believed. Now, knowing that makes verses two and three really interesting. If you were speaking in the ancient Near Eastern time and Romans times, if you were talking to Roman citizens about the Messiah, would you begin by quoting the Old Testament? Likely not. Mark, of all four gospel writers, uses less of the Old Testament than any of the other three. But he begins here by pointing to the Older Testament. His first credential points his readers to the fact that Jesus' arrival is based on Old Testament prophecy. This was not an accident. This was not someone who found himself in the position of being the Messiah, of being the leader of Israel, of being the Savior. It was predicted. Specifically, he grabs truth about the coming of the Messiah from three Old Testament passages, Exodus 23, 20, Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, interestingly enough, all four gospel writers quote Isaiah 43 when talking about John the baptizer as the forerunner of Jesus. Mark includes Isaiah, but also these other two passages. So why does Mark say, Isaiah said, when Moses and Micah also, Malachi rather, also said something? Well, don't get too tripped up on that. It's because Isaiah was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's just saying, in summary, as Isaiah said, and he added some cross-references in his attribution in any event, the point is that the messenger, a messenger, a forerunner, will be sent ahead of the Messiah to make the paths straight, to pave the way, 
to be a forerunner. Now, what does this mean? Now, in order to understand this, we have to get a little bit of ancient Near Eastern culture and history. There was a custom in those days when a monarch, a king, a governor was to come and visit a city or to go on a royal journey. They sent a forerunner, someone who went ahead, like the Secret Service, someone who would go and get everything ready. One of the things he did was to make the road travelable. He would smooth out roads. He would fill in ruts. He would get rocks out of the way so that as the chariot or uh, the horse-drawn carriage would come through, it would be as smooth as possible. His preparation and job was to make the coming of the monarch smoother and easier more acceptable. Now, what makes these two verses so important is this. If you look at them in their original context, these contexts refer to God, Yahweh, as the one whose paths would need to be made straight. The very first attribution of the characteristics of the Messiah that Mark gives is a clear demonstration that he believes Jesus to be God. He just said he was the son of God and now he uses verses that are only attributed to God in the Old Testament as now prophetically fulfilled in Jesus. That's significant. I will send my messenger ahead of you. Prepare your way. That your in the original is God. God's way. God's way and Jesus' way are said to be the same. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of Yahweh the Lord. Do you see what it's saying here? Mark is applying the coming of God in the Old Testament and making that synonymous with the coming of Jesus. It's incredible. I like how James Edwards says it. He says, the opening quotation of Mark transfers the fulfillment of God's eschatological future reign subtly but directly to Jesus. He's right. He's launching his gospel in a way that shows that Jesus is not only the son of God, but the next two verses after he says that, he says he is in essence God himself. That's profound. The very first thing that we learn about Jesus from the pen of Mark is that he is indeed God. The monarch is Jesus. The forerunner is his cousin, John the Baptist, son of Elizabeth. Also, look at verses four to six. He preached repentance. He prepared the way. Secondly, he, he preached repentance. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. The word wilderness occurs several times in this passage related to John and related to Jesus. It basically is a contrast from the Temple Mount where all of the religious uppity-ups love to draw attention to themselves. And all that is of God is about to come out of the wilderness. What's his message? John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet and a great preacher. What was his message? Repentance. That shouldn't surprise us. Listen to the words of Jesus to the disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24, 45. He says, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the message, it's repentance. It's not works salvation, it's very simply this. If you have a vital, living, right relationship with the God of the universe, it changes you. You change your mind, you change your actions, 
You change your affections. You change your priorities. That's repentance. John was preaching to this, I don't want to bore you with the details. It was called Second Temple Gnomism. We looked at this during, during our study of Romans. And what had happened was that people were beginning to think that if they could control some of the obedience to the law, some of which they even invented, beyond the 600 plus that God had given in the Old Testament. If they could create things they could obey, then they could please God by their own self-works righteousness. And John said, no, I'm gonna preach forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins, not as a way to store up credit with God, but a way to have your sins that you've committed against God forgiven. That was his message. That will be Jesus' message as well. Verse five, and all the country of Judea was going out to him. Specifically to be baptized, not necessarily out in the middle of the wilderness. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Listen, geography matters so much in the study of God's word. If we take the traditional place of John's baptizing of Jesus, this would have been, if you look at a map of Israel, there's Galilean Lake, the Sea of Galilee, and it came down to a little point and a little stream, not much more than that, of, called the Jordan River flowed out of that straight down about 80 miles to the Dead Sea. Right at the place where the lake comes to a, 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 a confluence with the river, just a few hundred yards beyond that, is where tradition tells us Jesus was doing, Jesus went to be baptized rather by John. Why is that significant? Because people were coming all the way from Jerusalem. 68 miles to the south, four days journey if you were nimble. If we take this location as accurate, John's reputation had reached Jerusalem, 68 walking miles journey, four days to a week's day's travel. And they went to hear John preach. It seems that John was popular and well-known. And we know that because if you fast forward the tape to Acts chapter 19, remember Paul up in Ephesus, way long, way, way far north of where Galilee is, up in Asia Minor. When he goes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he finds some of John the Baptist's disciples. That's how far and wide John's influence was. What was the response? Look at the last phrase in verse five. People were confessing their sins. They were being baptized by him. They were responding to his baptism of repentance. Now, Luke and Matthew add a lot of details that we're not gonna go to. His message, how he confronted the, the religious establishment and the religious leaders who came to him. But Mark just says here, there was a baptism of repentance. People were responding and confessing sins. In, in, our, in our vernacular, they were being saved and converted. Verse six is interesting. John was clothed with uh, uh, camel's hair. He had a camel's hair coat or shirt. And he wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Now, we look at John's dress and John's diet and think, hmm, that's, a, that's odd, that's weird. Listen, when Mark wrote this, the readers thought it was weird too. That's why he puts it in here. Let's look first at how he dressed. This is significant, majorly significant. In short, he dressed like Elijah. How do we know that? 2 Kings 1.8 says that Elijah was a hairy man. We'll talk about that in a minute. With a leather belt girdle girded around his loins. And he was Elijah the Tishbite. 
Now, this has been understood in two different ways that he was physically hairy, or a better way to interpret that is that he wore a garment made of hair. The, the Hebrew allows either interpretation. It's most likely that he wore this probably wool shirt, this outer garment, and a leather belt that bound it up. Now, why is that important? Because Zechariah 13.4 says that that was the exact uniform of a prophet. Some kind of hairy overcoat, animal overcoat with a leather girded belt. It announced to everyone that he dressed differently. It caught people's attention. And when their attention was put on John, it indicated that he was dressing like Elijah. What did he eat? Yes, he ate grasshoppers and honey. Now, before you get grossed out, just for full disclosure, they're not that bad. I've had chocolate-covered grasshoppers in uh, South Africa and sautéed roasted grasshoppers in Palakwani, Africa. They actually tasted like pecans. They were pretty good. I, I was a bit surprised. They look at you when you eat them, but that's for another time. Great source of protein, plentiful in the desert region where he preached. He would get honey. I could just, I just pictured John in this outfit going around picking up grasshoppers, having some kind of bowl of honey, dipping them in it and throwing them down. I wonder if he's preaching and he's got grasshopper legs in his teeth. I don't know. It was just interesting. What made his dress and diet stand out is that he was so demonstrably different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers who were supposed to be the experts in what God thought. He was a blue-collar man. Why is this association with Elijah, by the way, so important? Have you ever noticed the last Two verses in the Old Testament. Let me read those for you. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Coming, before coming, the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The people were looking for a prophet who looked and dressed and sounded like Elijah. How do we know that? Remember when Jesus in Matthew... Uh, 16 in Caesarea Philippi. He, he has a huddle up session. He brings the disciples together. He says, okay, you've been out and around doing ministry. Who do the people think I am? What are they saying about me? You know what they reported to Jesus? Some say you are Elijah. Why? Because the last two verses of the last prophet they have been left with. Look for someone in the spirit of Elijah. And here comes John the Baptist dressed like Elijah and the robes and the garments of a prophet that Zechariah tells us one would come in and they should have recognized him. But here was the danger. What if they did recognize something profound about John and began to think he is the one He's the Messiah. So our third subpoint, he pointed to Jesus. Verse 7, he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. He did not have 
a complex, a Messiah complex where he was gonna take the credit and the glory. He did not enjoy his popularity. He was going to transfer his lo- the loyalty the people had to him, to the Lord. One's coming after me. He's mightier than I. And you know what? Let me tell you about myself. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. That's exactly what a servant would do coming into a meal. And he said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In essence, John, what he's doing here is pointing to the two primary dimensions of the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Jesus' person, who he is, and his work, what he does. Who he is is the mighty one, the Messiah. What he does has to do with this baptism with the Spirit. It's interesting that Matthew and Luke describe John's passionate and direct warnings to the religious leaders. In fact, he was so strong and had such prophetic association, it would be tempting for everyone to assume that he's the Messiah. But John is piercingly clear. There's one coming after me. I am just the forerunner. I am just the one who God said would make the paths straight. Now, just a little Sanctified imagination here. Remember, he was the relative of Mary and Elizabeth were relatives. Remember, Mary was pregnant. She goes down to Jerusalem to visit uh, with Elizabeth. And they share this amazing miracle of both of their births. Elizabeth being old but came to have a child. And Mary obviously being a virgin. It's hard not to imagine. I think it's safe to say that Jesus and John grew up as cousins spending some time with each other. Oh, it was a visit of a few days, but we already saw from Mary's travel down when she was pregnant that that wasn't as big a deal as you might think. They knew each other and they knew each other well. I don't know, but I just wonder if they began having these conversations as teenagers, as men in their 20s. I don't know. That's interesting to think about. We'll probably be able to ask that one day. Look at what he says. He is mightier than me. He's worthy. He will have a better ministry than me. Now, what did John's baptism mean and how was it different than Jesus? We could spend a whole theological lesson on this. Let me make it really simple. Baptism, first of all, was a ceremonial cleansing that symbolized an inward change or inward allegiance. John baptized people who were willing to repent of their sins and be forgiven. Jesus, though, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this would indicate the work of salvation, but... This is interesting since we have no record that Jesus ever baptized anyone. How in the world then can John say he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit? Listen, it's explicit in John chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although, John says, Jesus himself was not baptizing. Instead, his disciples were. All to say, this speaking is not a literal, this is speaking not of a literal baptism with the Holy Spirit, but a baptism that will be a synonym for saving faith. We saw that in the book of Romans chapter 6. That baptism was, was so associated with someone's turn to Christ that it became a synonym. Baptism didn't save anyone then, nor does it save anyone now. But there was no such idea as an unbaptized believer. None. Mark's introduction of Jesus with this discussion of John the Baptist is significant. He's saying that the coming of Christ is purposeful and divinely ordained. Jesus was no accident. His ministry would be better and more efficacious than his cousin John's. 
I mean, their intertwined stories from their births, Matthew 3, Luke 1, show that God was miraculously and wonderfully working in both of these men, but that John the baptizer who preached repentance would turn the mantle, mantle of his influence over to his cousin, the Savior himself, Jesus. By the way, what happens to John the Baptist, Mark will cover in detail in chapter 6. And it's not a happy ending. So the first source of credibility for the Son of God is his forerunner. The second source now of credibility for the Son of God is his personal baptism. Jesus' baptism, his baptism, the witness of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is verses 9 through 11. Mark now points to the baptism of Jesus as a second source for his credibility. I find it interesting that Mark's account of Jesus' baptism is a mere three verses and only includes 53 Greek words. Luke and John spend a lot of time on this. Not Mark. This breaks down into three subpoints as well. First of all, we see the obedience of the Son, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, in the Jordan River, literally. He claimed, came the 30 plus miles from Nazareth east and south to be baptized. We're not given as many details, as I said, as Matthew and Luke provide, but Mark does include something significant. That's what happens at the baptism. Just as Jesus followed in obedience, the leadership of the last Old Testament prophet, John, he was calling repentant believers to be baptized, to associate themselves with God's man who is John and about to be the Lord himself. Listen, this was not for the forgiveness of sins. This was a symbol of the forgiveness that God had granted them as was expressed in their repentance. This is not baptismal regeneration, in other, in other words. It was merely a way to associate yourself with John and his prophetical preaching, and his messianic preparation. So Jesus didn't come to be baptized by John confessing his sins. That would have been impossible since he has no sin. He came to associate himself with John's ministry, the work of God through John. And this baptism was the official handing of the baton of the last Old Testament prophet from his hand to the Messiah himself, Jesus. You have all three members of the Trinity here at the baptism. Really curious and interesting. The Son is obviously there. And look now, the second set point, we, have, we see the blessing of the Spirit in verse 10. Immediately, one of John's favorite words, just then, right then, coming up out of the water, by the way, there was nothing being sprinkled here. Jesus went under the water and came up out of the water. I do believe that the Bible teaches baptism by immersion, not sprinkling. There are words for sprinkle. This is not that. Just had to get that in for you. Coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. Luke indicates that others saw this too. Mark highlights the fact that he was the one looking. It's like you're, you're standing watching him look up and see the heavens open. So it's not just that they open. You're watching Jesus look to the heavens, look to the sky. It parts in some physical way. And the spirit, like, underline the word like, like a dove. It wasn't a dove. I know we have pictures of the Holy Spirit as a dove. He could have said it was a dove. It was like a dove. It was Bird-like-ish. That's all we have. Descending upon him. This was a visible sign of God's approval. 
This was a physical sign, and Luke says that it, the, the Spirit landed on him, that he was now being commissioned to take the mantle of the prophethood from John as the Messiah on himself. Why does he say like a dove? Just an interesting study for you sometime. Keep your mind open when you read your Bible is the use of similes. You know what a simile is? Something is like something, it's as something. There's so many times when it just, the, the, the thing that's happening goes beyond human language. So the best you can do is say, well, it's like this. And that's what the writers described with this. They didn't say it was a dove. It was like a dove. Yes, I'm curious as to what it looked like too. And I can tell you it was, it was like a dove. Significant though is that the Spirit of God now is resting with and approving Jesus. Our third subpoint. We see the pleasure of the Father. We see the Son, the Spirit, and now the Father. And a voice came out of the heavens and said, now he says, you. This is a direct conversation between two members of the Trinity that we're allowed to listen to. It's pretty incredible. You are my beloved son. In you, I am, the Greek says, I have always and will always be pleased. You always have and always will bring me pleasure. We're given privy information to a conversation between these two members of the Trinity while the Holy Spirit rests on the Son himself. What did Mark begin in the title by telling us, uh, uh, telling us about Jesus? He is the Son of God. Ten verses later, God himself says to, God the Father says to Jesus, you are my who? Son. Do you see the connection there? Mark is, is beginning by making sure we know the conclusion of who Jesus is before we begin to understand the narrative of his life. A similar scene will take place in chapter 9 at the transfiguration. Just looking ahead briefly, Mark chapter 9, verse 7. A cloud formed overshadowing them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, the father says a second time. And Jesus will often refer to himself, as we'll see when we study, as the son of God. People were so offended by that, thinking him to claim to be deity himself. They picked up stones to kill him. This is important that the people at Jesus' baptism heard an independent verification from heaven. The voice of God the Father saying, this is my son. So the first source of credibility for the son of God is his forerunner. The second source of credibility for the son of God was his baptism. And the third source of credibility for the Son of God is his temptation. Which is the witness of the angelic realm, the devil and the angels. The bad side and the good side both affirm and come to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. We find our word again in verse 12. Immediately, right after he's baptized, immediately the Spirit impelled, strange Greek word, literally drove him. This was used of Jesus, same word of Jesus, driving demons out of people. It's that kind of forceful verb. The Spirit drove, impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. Think about this for a moment. Immediately following the Father's declaration that Jesus is his son, 
There's no celebration. There's no parade. No inauguration. No speech. No reception. The father confirms the identity that Jesus is his, of Jesus as his son and then sends him to be by himself in the desert, in the wilderness. For 40 days and 40 nights, he will have a conference with the devil, with Satan himself. Now, this is, this is so hard not to do a deep dive here and look at what Luke and Matthew tell us about this temptation. Mark just uses two verses. You can look at Matthew 4, 1 to 11, Luke 4, 1 to 13. But Mark's record of this is no less important, even though he doesn't go into great detail. He was tempted by Satan for over a month, 40 days and 40 nights, we know that he didn't eat or drink. He was fasting. But Mark only says this. He was with wild beasts. With the wild beasts. Now, I want to confess to you, this, this has tripped me up for, for a long time. Why? Why would Mark say he's out there with the critters? He's out there with the wild beasts. Why would that be there? And let me just say before I, before I go into a possible explanation, I don't have this on any authority, but I think it's a really good explanation from scholars that I, I trust. We can't be 100% certain, but I agree with the scholarship that the audience of the Gospels was probably Romans, Gentile, Gentiles who were believers in Rome. If Mark is writing to Gentiles in Rome during the beginning of Nero's wicked persecution and reign, which would have to be the case because Mark writes before the fall of the temple. We'll get to that when we get to his eschatological sections. We know it's before the fall of the temple, which is right in the heart of Nero's terror and reign and persecution and killing of Christians. And he's writing this to people who would believe who lived under the shadow of Nero and it's quite possible that the mentioning of the wild beasts has a significant reference for them because it's the same exact phrase used when Nero said, feed the Christians to the wild beasts. You remember what he would do in Teatro Marcello, Marcello's theater, a smaller amphitheater, not far from the great Colossus Museum, Colosseum. He would have them painted with animal blood, covered with freshly skinned animal skins, throw them into the arena, and then turn loose lions to come and devour them. I don't know for sure, but it sure makes sense that he would use that phrase, which would have triggered an instant association in the minds of the Roman readers. They would have been encouraged, too, that the imminent danger that they were in was the same that Jesus was. He prevailed with the power of the Holy Spirit, but lest someone think that they thought, well, he got out of it and we're about to go die. He would be crucified on a cruel Roman cross over hours, not the few seconds it would take to die at the claws and teeth of a wild animal. And even if these Christians were to be eaten alive, they could have confidence that their scourged and crucified Messiah could identify with their fears and temptations. The wild beasts were out in the Judean wilderness. How do we know that? Remember David shepherded in that same wilderness? And we find out that David at one point killed a lion and a bear. I've told you 
before I, I enjoy hunting, and there's been a few times when I have camped where there have been wild beasts, not lions, but bears in Alaska. And I had plenty to protect myself and four or five guys also with us. I just imagine the constant human weakness fear that the Lord would have had putting his head on the ground every night and hearing the roars and the sounds and the temptation to run from the wilderness. This is what I think Mark puts this in here for. The temptation to leave what was dangerous and go back to what was safe. For 40 days and 40 nights. Yet our Savior continued to depend upon and trust the Holy Spirit in the weakness of his humanity. It's incredible. Do you see how Mark uses the forerunner, his baptism, and his temptation to say he has the credentials to be the Son of God? I began to preach to myself at the end of my preparation this week and kind of pushed back from the desk and said, what, what is Mark telling me? What is Mark, the Holy Spirit, communicating to me? And there could be hundreds or thousands of applications. Can I just give you a few that I jotted down? We can have assurance that Jesus is the one to follow and commit our lives to. We can have confidence that this is the one if anyone knew, John the Baptist did, and he said, this is the one. Secondly, we can begin to understand the theology of sin and its solution. That was the first theological message of John, and that will be the message all the way through the resurrection. Recognition of sin and finding repentance and turning to the one who can forgive Can I just say this thirdly? Jesus followed in believer's baptism. Can I just ask you again, have you been baptized? Have you, have you postponed obedience to the Lord? He himself was baptized. Why, if you know the Lord and you're pushing this off, why, why are you doing that? Just two more. John's message was this. The Savior is coming. You know what our message is? The Savior has come. And then lastly, without going into details with Matthew and Luke, Jesus overcame temptation and offers us hope to do the same Hebrews 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but the one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, he was tempted and overcame and offers us assistance as well. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Each one of these three scenes is worthy of hours or weeks of study and probably exposition. But all three of these are used in close connective tissue tandem as a setup for the credibility of Jesus before we look at his beginning ministry in Galilee in verse 14. Verse 14. 